Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, Anne McCutcheon, author of the book The Life She Wished to Live, a biography of Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings. That is what she was looking for, or what she noticed when she was there, how people, place, soil, plants, weather, it's all connected. We'll discuss new research into Florida's territorial period. Decades of research using new methodologies and interpretive frameworks has produced a more nuanced and layered understanding of the past that can be applied to the state's territorial history. And we'll talk about endangered historic places. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings lived and worked in rural Florida near Gainesville. She wrote about her experiences in books including the 1939 Pulitzer Prize-winning novel The Yearling and the popular Cross Creek. Ann McCutcheon is author of the book The Life She Wished to Live, a biography of Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings published by W.W. W. Norton & Company. Like many people, McCutcheon discovered Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings' work as a child. In the fourth grade in Pompano Beach, McNabb Elementary School, my fourth grade teacher read The Yearling to the class um, over the course of months, I suppose, because she, uh, she read a few pages every day after, after lunch. We would come back from lunch and she'd read The Yearling to us. So that was my first exposure. McCutcheon is a frequent visitor to Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings Farmhouse, which is now preserved in a state park at Cross Creek. McCutcheon says that visiting the property makes her feel closer to Marjorie. Over the course of the research, I, I went to the farm many, many times. As you know, I attended Titusville High School, and one of my high school classmates has a lake house in Keystone Heights, which is not far from Gainesville and, and the creek. And so very often when I went to Gainesville for research, I'd also go out to Keystone Heights and uh, either Sandy would be there or I would have the, the house to myself. So I just, I went to the creek every time and I've taken the tour many times and taken friends on the tour. And then we often end up at the Yearling restaurant <laughs> afterwards. So that was a, a way to introduce others to it. But being there by myself or just with a small group of people, I increasingly felt closer to Marjorie and, and, and the life she lived there. It, it has been beautiful, all of it. Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings was a gifted writer. 
she was also an alcoholic who could be difficult to get along with. Anne McCutcheon wanted to find out more about this complex woman and discovered the extensive collection of Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings' papers at the University of Florida. When I first called Flo Turcott, who is the archivist in, in charge of the collection, I called her on the phone and said I was interested in coming to see the materials. She, she just shot back, oh, it's one-stop shopping here. And she was so right. I mean, there were other things I had to research and to go dig out, but there was so much material there. Uh, one could simply write the biography from those materials. Um, I found more, but still, it was massive. And when I first saw it all, I was overjoyed <laughs> because there would be so much to work with. It didn't bother me at all that it would take time and, and effort. It was a treasure trove. Rawlings was a prolific letter writer who corresponded with her agent, Max Perkins, both of her husbands, and fellow writers, including Ernest Hemingway, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and Zora Neale Hurston. Well, thousands of letters, literally uh, more than 4,000 letters to and from her. And so with that much material and many letters, I could get a sense, uh, especially with her the people she kept in contact with on a regular basis of ongoing, unfurling, developing friendships. And the kinds of things she shared ranged from how her ducks and petunias are doing, you know, in the this, in this spring, to what she's reading, conversations about um, books she had read and she and her correspondent had read. That was actually a hard part for me to uh, slim down. I got engrossed at one point with everything she had read, and I was riveted by these conversations. But then I realized you can't put every book in there, and, and some of these books are, are unfamiliar to people now. Uh, so that was a challenge for me. But that's all to say that the range of subjects was um, was very broad, and she was just as excited about I don't know, spring vegetables emerging as she was about reading another political book uh, around World War II. Anne McCutcheon also turned to Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings' autobiographical manuscripts for insight while writing the biography, The Life She Wished to Live. The one that she left behind, um, Blood of My Blood, which Anne Blythe edited and was published by the University of Florida Press, was, was essential to me. I put that, that together with information I got from a historian in Brooklyn, where she grew up, who could help me verify times and places and look at her book and say, well, what, what can we say is fact? because she wrote it supposedly as a novel, or she tried to pass it off as a novel in a contest, but it is a memoir, and it's got a particular edge to it, coming to terms with her mother, so that has to be figured in. It's very um, challenging to look at something someone has written about their life and detect what the need of the document is, why she wrote that, what was driving it, and then from that to extract what could be fact or what was a real driver for this individual that is worth depending on and, and reporting in a biography. Rawlings' Cross Creek is a semi-autobiographical book about her life in Florida and also informed McCutcheon's work. It certainly did. There were um, a couple of uh, stories um, from that 
like Hyacinth's Drift, which we, you know, so many of us love, that um, was an account of a trip she took down or up <laughs> the St. John's River with Jesse Smith. And it's a gorgeous piece. But I also contrasted that with uh, in, an interview someone had done with Jesse years later about that trip. And so I had Marjorie's lyrical, well-organized uh, voice and some comments by Desi to put together and to uh, re refine the, the account of that trip. But Cross Creek is just a wonderful book of um, creative nonfiction, as we say, personal essays, personal episodes that ring, ring with truth. Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings didn't come from rural Florida, but immersed herself in the cracker culture she wrote about. This fit in with larger literary and journalistic trends of the period to preserve American folk culture. Anne McCutcheon. She was writing at a time in the 30s and, and uh, early 40s about that particular place, rural Florida, which had not been documented in literature so much. Um, WPA writers were going down into all nooks and crannies of the South, um, and some of them very wonderful writers um, being assigned or earning their living that way. But there was a move afoot after World War I to seek out the creeks and hollers <laughs> that hadn't been exposed and uh, to gather that culture. The Library of Congress was involved. Uh, so she was part of a trend a movement even, but nowhere did I see in her correspondence anything about that. She never said in writing anywhere I could find, I'm going to join this movement or I mean to wring stuff out of that place. I mean, nothing uh, that spoke of a journalist or a culture historian going into that place. I only saw the need to write literature. So it's interesting, but she was of the time. She was of the times. Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings did express racist views typical of the 1930s and 40s. Her friendship with fellow writer Zora Neale Hurston expanded her thinking and helped her to grow in that regard. It certainly did. She held the conventional views of the time, of white views of the time. I wouldn't call her a Southerner exactly. She wasn't really a Southerner. She sort of became one, kind of. But she held conventional views. She had a staff of African-American um, neighbors who helped on the farm and uh, on, even served her breakfast in bed on occasion. So when she met Zora, it was what I like to say, the come to Jesus moment. We said, oh, here is a person of color who is a fabulous writer. She is my intellectual equal. Oh, and so the sky opened up for her, that friendship. And uh, it took a couple of years. I sort of tracked it through correspondence with her husband, uh, Norton Baskin, of how she gradually came to see what her views had been and what they needed to shift to. And she became an outspoken um, supporter of civil rights. It was a wonderful friendship, wonderful moment in her life. Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings' writing demonstrates a cosmic consciousness that was built upon at Cross Creek. It was an idea that she had encountered as, as a college student, and that phrase had just been invented maybe mm, 10 years before she went to the University of Wisconsin and was applied to Whitman, for example, and it really fit her. She was not religious in a conventional sense, although she attended church as a child, but she latched onto that idea in college and wrote a college essay about it. There's a, a fragment of that essay that I um, was able to dig up 
And so from that point, age 18, 19, she saw, began to see more and more how everything is connected, everything, life on earth, um, even no, <laughs> things that aren't living on earth are somehow connected to one another. And that idea she carried to Cross Creek. And that is what she was looking for, or what she noticed when she was there, how people, place, soil, plants, weather, it's all connected. And the idea of that web runs throughout all of her work. Anne McCutcheon is author of the book, The Life She Wished to Live, a biography of Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings, published by W.W. Norton and Company. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime online to watch our public television series, Florida Frontiers. Find engaging educational resources and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Connie Lester, Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. Connie, Spain transferred ownership of Florida to the United States in July 1821, and the territorial period officially began the following year. Yes, the lag time can be explained by the need for Congress to ratify the treaty. As is often the case when anniversary dates occur, I think we can expect to see new research and new interpretations. You may ask yourself how and why we should anticipate revisions in our understanding of territorial Florida. Isn't the past locked in place? Don't we have all the information about what happened? The answer, of course, is yes and no. We know the dates of important events. We have access to the legal documents that initiated and concluded the territorial period, and we have the diaries and papers of the principal political actors. That said, 21st century historians benefit from greater access to documents, maps, diaries, and other primary sources that reflect the views and actions of others with interest in Florida's quest for statehood. In addition, decades of research using new methodologies and interpretive frameworks has produced a more nuanced and layered understanding of the past that can be applied to the state's territorial history. Now, Connie, much of the latest research on Florida's territorial period focuses on the diverse populations that lived here 200 years ago, right? Indeed, we can expect new research on Florida's territorial period to illuminate the complexity of a multicultural, multiracial region 
on the periphery of both the Atlantic Caribbean world and the United States. Listing the competing elements of the territorial narrative can help us visualize some of the possibilities for new research. New research might focus on the pre-United States control over Florida in order to better understand the entangled networks of kinship and friendship and political and economic alliances. In the century leading up to the Adams-Onis Treaty, in which Spain ceded its claims to Florida to the United States government, control over the area shifted with the fortunes of European wars. Following the Seven Years' War, or as Americans call it, the French and Indian War, Britain gained Florida through the 1763 Treaty of Paris. As Britain's 14th colony, Florida served as a sanctuary for British loyalists when the revolution broke out in the colonies in 1776. Twenty years later, at the close of the American Revolution, Britain returned Florida to Spain in the 1783 Treaty of Paris. The Louisiana Purchase in 1803 added a new layer of conflict over national land claims as disputes over West Florida roiled relations between the United States and the Spanish government and kept West Florida in turmoil. Adding to the chaotic situation, the passage of the 1807 Act prohibiting the importation of slaves left Florida as the back door for the now illegal international slave trade. Research by historians Daniel Schaefer and Jim Cusick, among others, has focused on the turmoil of the borderland that included competing land claims by a variety of European settlers, maroon communities, enslaved Africans, American squatters, grifters, and investors anticipating a quick profit, as well as indigenous people defending their rights to the land. I think we can expect a new generation of scholars to tease out the communication and trade networks that informed power. In addition, recent research on 18th and 19th century concepts of nature promised to shed new light on the economic development of Florida. I, for one, am looking forward to reading this new research, and I hope you are too. The territorial period certainly is fascinating. Florida didn't actually become a state until 1845. It did not. Another avenue for exploration then would be that push for statehood. Almost a quarter of a century elapsed between the start of Florida's territorial status and statehood. The causes for the delay are well known. Low population, poor economic outlook, competing ideas for determining statehood, some called for annexation by Alabama and Georgia, Others proposed a division into two states, and there was considerable citizen opposition to statehood. Florida's statehood claims were also drawn into larger national debates over slavery. Statehood was more than a Florida issue. The addition of another slave state had implications for the nation's future. For those who do not know, Florida's statehood was paired with that of Iowa to assure the addition of one slave and one free state under the provisions of the 1821 Missouri Compromise. Finally, from 1835 to 1842, Florida was the battleground for the Second Seminole War, a costly and unpopular conflict that both magnified and shaped other conflicts. How should we understand this cauldron of competing interests? Once again, we are confronted with a set of events that demonstrate complex and conflicting relationships that cross social, economic, political, racial, and national boundaries. 
With access to new digital tools for researching and presenting evidence and new interpretive frameworks for analyzing the past, we can expect new insights into the power dynamics that accompanied the political debates during Florida's territorial period. Thanks, Connie. You're welcome. Connie Lester is Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. This is Florida Frontiers. Holly Baker is taking us around Florida to look at endangered historic places. The Florida Trust for Historic Preservation's 11 to Save list highlights the most threatened historic properties and resources in Florida. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, has partnered with the Florida Trust to bring awareness to their 11 to Save list. In previous episodes, we discussed six of the 11 to Save sites. Christine Dalton is a historic preservation and community planning consultant and a member of the Florida Trust Board of Trustees. She gave me an overview of the five remaining sites on the 2020 11 to Save list, starting with the Black Bottom House of Prayer, one of the oldest African-American churches in Orlando. The Black Bottom House of Prayer is one of our 11 to Save sites that's in Orlando. It's in Orange County, and it was built in 1925. And the House of Prayer is a reminder of what was once the thriving and bustling community of Paramore, which is near downtown Orlando. This was located in a low-lying section of um, this area of Orlando, and it was called Black Bottom due to the black mud that was left behind from constant flooding in the area. And the building is a Spanish-style mission church, which was originally occupied by the Pleasant Hill Colored Methodist Episcopal Church. It later became the Carter Tabernacle Christian Methodist Episcopal Church. The building served for nearly a century as a religious entity and then it kind of switched into a community meeting center and school for the African-American community. In the spring of 2020, the building was designated as an Orlando Historic Landmark. Unfortunately, there's a lot of deferred maintenance on the building, and there was a roof collapse in 2020 that is really hindering the preservation efforts. So the entity that is uh, really trying to raise funds for this right now is the Orange Preservation Trust, and they are just trying to secure funding to help uh, rehab, at least stabilize this landmark. And it's their hope that uh, listing on the 11 to save is going to help them in the fundraising efforts. The Walter Farley House in Sarasota County is also featured on the 2020 11 to save list. The Walter Farley House is located in Venice in Sarasota County and it was built in 1956. And it's on a couple of acres overlooking the Gulf of Mexico. And it was designed by famed Sarasota School architect Ralph Twitchell with an addition by Jack West. And it was built as the home and studio of Walter Farley, the author of the Black Stallion series of books. The property is currently on the market and it's listed as a home for sale in need of repair, but also as vacant land for the buyer to demolish in order to construct a new home. Um, which obviously we hope does not happen. We're hoping that the redevelopment plans for the site, of course, 
include uh, rehabilitation of the house, restoration of the house, and not demolition. The 2020 11 to save list includes the Patton House in Manatee County. The Patton House is located in Ellington, and it was built in 1895. The house was built by Dudley Patton, who was the son of General George Patton. He had purchased the Gamble Plantation and moved his family from Savannah to Florida following the Civil War. And the building is a one-story wooden structure. The house was expanded to include a second story, a wraparound porch, and a very early indoor toilet. Unfortunately, um, there has been extensive termite damage and other maintenance uh, issues that have resulted in the patent house being closed since 2014. And so it's hoped that the building will be preserved and that there will be some interpretation programs that can be related to the building and its history. So that's still in process. The next building on the 11 to save list Pensacola Vocational School was completed in 1942 by the Works Progress Administration. Christine Dalton. The Pensacola Vocational School is one of our 2020 11 to save that's in Escambia County in Pensacola. And this building was built in 1942. And during World War II, the school trained both civilian and military students. And it's a claim to fame is the Rosie the Riveters of Pensacola there. The school later trained African-American students and served as the administrative headquarters for the Escambia County School District. The vocational school building is one of the uh, few remaining pre-1950s buildings related in uh, the city's tan yard neighborhood. It's been vacant since 2010. And uh, the site is actually proposed for redevelopment. So the entity that nominated this is hoping that some public exposure on the architecture of the building, its role in the history of Pensacola might help to convince uh, the developers who are in charge of redevelopment of the site to possibly keep the school building as a focal point of the redevelopment. Another irreplaceable structure on the 2020 11 to save list is the St. Cloud Municipal Building in Osceola County. The St. Cloud Municipal Utilities Building is located in St. Cloud in Osceola County, and this building was built in 1926. It was the first building to provide electricity to a city that was established in 1909. St. Cloud was actually established as a retirement community for Civil War Union veterans, and it was nicknamed the Friendly Soldier City. In 1994, this building was sold to the Orlando Utilities Commission, and it was in operation until 2008, but unfortunately in the 1990s, it was determined that there was extensive contamination to the building. And currently the remediation strategies for the site do include uh, demolition of the structure. So the fate of the St. Cloud Municipal Utilities building is still unknown, but there have been um, some positive developments uh, recently. There has been discussions between St. Cloud Main Street and the elected officials about the potential for rehabilitation of this building rather than demolition. So there's a lot that remains to be seen with this project, but we're hopeful that some kind of compromise can be reached that would actually enable uh, rehabilitation of the building as opposed to demolition. Stay tuned for future episodes where we'll discuss the Florida Trust's 11 to save list for 2021. To learn more about the Florida Trust for Historic Preservation and the 11 to save list, go to floridatrust.org. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. 
You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, find us anytime online at myfloridahistory.org and on Facebook. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Holly Baker and Connie Lester. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brookmarkle. Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.